You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. of us when we think about Christmas or we think about the Christmas story, especially if you were raised um, in a church, naturally there's just always this tendency to kind of begin to think about, you know, a baby, you know, a manger, a star, shepherds, wise men, angels. And there's a tendency to kind of just jump right into the Christmas story because for most of us, that's the imagery of Christmas, as it should be. What's interesting is, as we kind of move into the Christmas season, the season of Advent, and as I began to kind of think about what we're gonna talk about these next few Sundays as we make that journey toward Christmas, the thing that really captures my attention over and over again is this. When the gospel writer Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament, when he launched into writing the story about Jesus, he doesn't begin with, you know, a once upon a time, there was a woman named Mary and an angel appeared to her, yada, yada, yada. Matthew's gospel doesn't begin with, and there were angels, you know, keeping or there were shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. Matthew, in his gospel account, he doesn't start there. When Matthew begins to tell the story of Jesus, he doesn't start with a baby born in a manger there in Bethlehem. Interestingly, Matthew chooses to start the story of Jesus someplace entirely different. Remember, Matthew in his former life, before he became a follower, a disciple of Jesus, he was a tax collector who went by the name Levi. And Levi was not only a tax collector, but he was Jewish. He was raised as a Jewish child. Which when you kind of mix the two, a Jewish and a tax collector together, that made him a bad guy and a traitor to the Jewish people. See, the Jews didn't like Levi because the Romans were using this Jewish man to do their dirty work. Levi collected taxes from his fellow Jews and then gave those taxes to the Romans to support a government the Jewish people utterly despised. And not to mention, Levi would always charge more than what was really owed and then he would kind of take and he would skim the excess off the top and kind of put it in his own pocket. So Levi, as this Jewish tax collector, was somebody, because of the way he lived his life, he was never able to fully enter into the Jewish lifestyle. He was never welcomed in the temple, and he was somebody who couldn't keep the Mosaic law because he was viewed as a thief and a traitor to his own people. And therefore, he wasn't welcome in the temple, and he was alienated from God as far as everyone else was concerned. And yet, for some reason, which wouldn't have made sense to any other 
Jew living in that day, Jesus calls Levi to follow him. Levi leaves as a tax collector, follows Jesus, and is renamed Matthew. And he went on to write one of the four Gospels. Now Matthew's Gospel specifically targeted an audience that was predominantly Jewish. And Matthew knew that one of the things his Jewish audience would assume that if Jesus were the Messiah, he would have to come from the lineage, the genealogy of David. So in order to set the tone, in order to kind of build his case, that in fact Jesus was the true Messiah, Matthew knew that his Jewish audience would rightfully ask the question, is Jesus related to David? Because if he's not a part of the genealogy, the lineage of David, then every Jewish person would reject Jesus as the Messiah. So Matthew because again, he's targeting a Jewish audience and he's answering a very important question. He's addressing a very important point. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. Now back in those days, it wasn't unusual to launch into the story of a famous person with a genealogy. That wasn't unusual. As a matter of fact, it was very common in those days. What is unusual is what Matthew does with this genealogy, how he leverages this genealogy to kind of just put some really tough stuff right in the face of his Jewish audience and some things that couldn't possibly mix in order to make the point that Jesus is not just another special person, but rather Jesus has a very unique claim, a unique position, and a unique message. Now, if you've ever studied ancient history or ancient liturgy, Generally, the only genealogies we have are the genealogies of kings and emperors because they were the only ones who could afford to hire uh, a historian to chart them. People, you know, just didn't walk around in those days writing the history of Jewish carpenters. We only have one of those. These aren't genealogies. There aren't genealogies of fishermen, uh, of shepherds. You only get genealogies of spectacular, famous, important people whose lineages are very, very crucial. It would have been very unusual to have a genealogy of Jesus as an ordinary carpenter from Galilee unless Jesus was someone of very prominent and unique status. But if you study ancient history, here's what you find. When kings and emperors would hire historians to tell their story, there would generally be a genealogy that would link them back and show that they were in fact in line to become the next king or emperor. But often what you find in these genealogies is you'll kind of find gaps. 
and, and blanks in the genealogy. Whereas someone would have a great-great-grandson, instead of giving all the names between the great-great-grandfather and the great-great-grandson, there would be these big gaps that say so-and-so begat so-and-so, and then they would leave people out intentionally. And historians would look at that and they would kind of be frustrated because they would ask, why did these people leave out other people? Clearly, there are not enough names in the genealogy to account for all of these years. And what these historians came to discover was that when there was someone in the emperor's lineage, when there was somebody in the king's genealogy that was an embarrassment, the king or the emperor would simply say, don't include them. Leave them out. I don't want their names mentioned. I don't want their stories told. Oftentimes we do that in our culture by just cutting them out of pictures, right? How many of you have done that? Had a fight with somebody, you take the picture out of the family photo and you just cut them out. No longer there. Kind of how we do that in our culture today. And so these kings would actually make sure they were not publicly associated with criminals, traitors, and people who had a sordid past. Now Matthew goes out of his way to make sure his audience then, and his audience now today, us here, to not miss the fact that Jesus comes from a long line of people many of whom were an embarrassment to the Old Testament. Jesus includes in his genealogy the names of some people whose stories are R-rated or NC-17. The people in these stories Matthew goes out of his way to bring these people, their names, their histories up as a way to say these people were related to Jesus. And it's this long genealogy, and it's very interesting. We'll get into that in a couple of minutes. Matthew says it's men, father, son, father, son, father, son. And then he goes out of his way to mention three women. And wouldn't you know, they're the wrong three women. They're not women you would want to have people think you were associated with or related to. And whereas Matthew's trying to build this case that Jesus, having divine origin, Matthew goes out of his way to make sure his audience knows that in the lineage, in the genealogy of Jesus, there are some grade A sinners. I mean people who have done everything you could think possibly imaginable. And Matthew's message and his intent is simply this. God went out of his way to weave into the tapestry, the lineage of Jesus, 
past sinners of magnanimous proportion. Sinners, again, who did stuff you and I may think of, but we would never, ever do. And instead of dropping the names, cutting them out, skipping over them, it's as if Matthew kind of highlights them for his readers. Why would he do that? Matthew knew in setting up the story of the coming of Jesus, he did not want his audience then, his audience today, to miss the point that Jesus was not just simply another teacher, not just simply another nice guy. This was somebody unique. This was somebody with a unique purpose, somebody with a unique call of God upon his life. And Matthew wanted his audience to know, yeah, this man Jesus, he is from the lineage of David. But he says, let's just get all of the dirt on the table because what you're gonna find out, this is the very fact, the very reason of why he came. Matthew 1.1 begins this way. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. If you don't know the story of Tamar, Tamar's story is so just offensive that I really can't tell you without offending some of you what all is involved in the story of Tamar. If you're familiar with the story of Tamar, you're familiar with the themes of incest, of rape, of murder. And Matthew, right up front, says, y'all remember Tamar, don't you? And the whole audience is like, yeah, but why do you have to bring her up? Matthew says, just wanted you to know, the Messiah is related to Tamar. The Jews want to say, quit saying that name. We know who she is. We know what she did. Stop rubbing our faces in it. And Matthew's just trying to lay before them the lineage of Jesus. And he wants his audience then, and he wants his audience now to know about this woman who did just this unspeakable, offensive, wicked thing that they just did not want to be reminded of. And Matthew chapter one, verse three, continues the genealogy. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was... Rahab. There we go, another woman's name. Rahab had a nickname. Anybody know what that nickname was? Rahab the harlot. This wasn't Rahab the mother of virtue. This wasn't, you know, Rahab the recipient of the Mother Teresa Award. This was Rahab, the why in the world do you have to bring her up? This was Rahab, who wasn't even Jewish, by the way. 
She's a Canaanite woman. She shouldn't be in the lineage of anyone, let alone the genealogy of Jesus. And yet Matthew says, y'all remember Rahab. The Jews are going, yeah, but uh, just keep moving. Matthew's like, nope, let's just pause. Let's just kind of take a moment and let's just camp out on the word, the name Rahab. Again, it begs the question, why does Matthew do this? Why does Matthew include these women, these names, these stories of these very imperfect, embarrassing women? I mean, these are the people you leave out. These are the people you ignore. These are the people you just skip over, pretend they never existed. And yet right out of the box, Matthew chooses to begin the Christmas story, the coming of our Savior with a genealogy. And then he goes out of his way to make sure everybody knows the kind of people God chose intentionally to be a part of the story of Jesus. Matthew continues on in verse five. Boaz, the son, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth was, we all like Ruth. Ruth's a good woman. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting to the important names. Jesus was related to King David. But Matthew just couldn't leave it alone. Matthew kind of has to pick up a stick and just kind of whack the hornet's nest because he goes on to say, David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Remember that story? All the Jewish audience that Matthew's targeting, they all knew that story very well. Matthew's talking about David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba was Solomon's mom. And Bathsheba got pregnant by King David while she was married to another man named Uriah. And it's as if Matthew is kind of just saying and kind of poking to the Jewish audience there, you know, well, what would you looky there? Look who else shows up in the lineage and the genealogy of Jesus. The faithful husband, the faithful soldier, a man who was intentionally killed by your famous and acclaimed King David to try to cover up his sin. Your King David arranged premeditated murder, arranged for Bathsheba's husband Uriah to be killed in battle just so David could take her for his wife and cover up his sin. And wouldn't you know, of all of David's wives, of all of David's children, God intentionally, specifically chose Bathsheba who David shouldn't have been married to in the first place. 
to bear a son named Solomon who was in the lineage of Jesus the Christ. Again, what is, what is Matthew getting at here? What's his point in doing this? I mean, to me, it kind of seems really unnecessary. I mean, to me, you're kind of taking a huge risk here of alienating a large part of the audience you're trying to target. Just make the point, Matthew, that Jesus is related to David and move on. Why do you have to go back to Abraham? Why do you have to bring up these women? Why do you have to camp out on the one part of David's life and kingdom that we're all embarrassed by? And I believe it was this. Because Matthew lived in a culture, in a time, as many of us do, where the primary focus and pursuit was about men and women who were constantly trying to build their own case of personal righteousness and personal goodness as an acceptable approach to God. Where men and women back then and even today are constantly looking for creating and building a personal platform of righteousness upon which we can stand based upon our own works, our own merit, our own efforts, and be acceptable in God's eyes. Men and women who were trying to mount up enough good deeds to finally have a platform where they could stand on and say, hey God, did you notice what I did? Hey God, what about me? Are you impressed with my righteousness? God, are you impressed by my holiness? Are you impressed by my diligence? The platform on which I come to you is my goodness. It's my righteousness. It's my abilities. It's my efforts, my deeds, my blessability. That was how people approached God back then, and that is one of the ways people approach God today. In our culture, it kind of sounds a little bit like this. You know, God, nobody's perfect, but I'm better than most. I pay my taxes. I'm here in church today. I may not understand what the sermon's about, but I'm here. God, I try to be a good parent. I try to be a good spouse. God, I've kept 10, all right, seven of the 10 commandments. I'm a good person. And I come to you, God, based upon all of that, and I'm asking God to be able to spend eternity with you, if there's such a place. And God, I'm asking, based upon all of my great efforts here, that I'm asking you to answer my prayer. Because God, I'm coming to you based upon my own righteousness, my own goodness, my own holiness. And so Matthew lived and he wrote his gospel in a culture that was all about this. And Matthew's concern was this. As I launch into the story of Jesus, as I launch into the story of Christmas, 
He didn't want his audience to think for a moment that this was more of that. This was not more of the same. This isn't the law revisited. This wasn't about somebody coming and giving us, uh, again, uh, another list of things to do. This was simply a teacher who, um, who wasn't saying, hey, you better watch out, you better not cry. Let me tell you what else you've got to do to make sure you and God are on good terms. Matthew goes out of his way to say that this is not a story about gaining access to God through personal righteousness. He says the story of Jesus has nothing to do about you needing to create a platform to get in good with God so that you can impress him by your goodness, by your promise, your plans, your rededications, your deeds, your resolutions. Matthew is saying before we even get into the Christmas story, I want you to understand it has nothing to do with that. And Matthew's angle is, you don't believe me? I'll prove it to you. Because your God went out of his way to weave, to include into the Christmas story people who had no platform of righteousness. They had no platform of holiness to stand on. God intentionally, specifically used prostitutes, liars, murderers, thieves, dishonest people, all kinds of people, and he specifically included them into the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus. And yet, that wasn't an obstacle to God. But rather, it's a part of the story. And I think from Matthew's perspective, he would have said, which is the point? You see, Matthew had a past. He's like a lot of us. Matthew knew that if gaining access and acceptance to God depended upon his own personal righteousness, his own good deeds, his own platform of personal holiness, he knew he had nothing to stand on. Matthew, like a lot of us, knew he had no platform, no access to God on his own. So as Matthew spent time with Jesus, he begins to understand Jesus is offering a whole new way. Jesus is offering this brand new approach to God. And as he begins to kind of see that, he becomes overwhelmed. So he must have reveled in the fact that in Jesus' ancestry was all of these people who were just like him, who had not a leg to stand on when it came to personal righteousness. 
Men and women who could never come to God based upon their own goodness. Men and women like him who if they were ever going to get to God, it was gonna take something other than hard work and good deeds. The story of Christmas was a story that was originally told to a group of people who thought this was the only way to God, the platform of good deeds. Earn it, do this, don't do that. And the thing Matthew feared among everything else was that in the reading of the story that we would think it was Jesus coming to offer more of the same. Every other world religion, every other approach to God outside of Christianity is simply this. I'm gonna do my best. I'm going to be as obedient as I can be. I'm gonna love God as hard as I can. I'm gonna obey the law as best I can. And that eventually, at some point in all of that, God is gonna come to me and say, that's good enough now, you're in. And Matthew comes along and he says, no. What Jesus is offering is something entirely different. And the story about Jesus is about becoming a child of God, simply by putting our faith and trust in who Christ is and what he did upon the cross over 2,000 years ago. You see, the challenge is this. Are we men and women who even in our Christianity, even in our church, who even in our Bible reading, are we men and women who have completely missed the message of Christmas by continuing to come to God based on, God, I'm really not so bad. I'm better than so-and-so. And God, I'm gonna do better, I promise. I'm trying. The message of Christmas is to men and women who would be willing to transfer their trust and say, I'm not approaching you, God, on the platform of my own righteousness, but rather, God, I am approaching you on the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Not through my best efforts, not through my greatest achievements, but through the pure gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the Savior. That's the message of Christmas. And Matthew, before he even launches into the baby in a manger, knew we needed to know right up front, this is unlike any story ever told, ever written. This is not religion repackaged, this is a brand new thing for a brand new day. It's a brand new way for a brand new day. This approach to God that was done in the past is no more. And that through Jesus Christ, we have been given the gift of relationship through faith. Now as we move into this season, as we move into this series, here's the question I wanna ask you. 
Where do you stand as it relates to God? Some of you may be here this morning, you're kind of standing on, on two boxes. And, and one foot is kind of on your own personal righteousness. You're kind of looking and you're thinking about all the great things you've done, you know, the, the great ways that you've served God. And, and you're kind of putting some faith and trust and you're giving some leverage to that, that, that that's, that's the approach. That's what's gonna get me into heaven. That, that's the approach of some of us. But the approach that we need to take is where we completely remove the foot off of our own personal righteousness and we put our full weight, we leverage everything. That this is not about me, this is not about what I've done, good, bad, or otherwise. As a matter of fact, what God is looking at really doesn't involve me. What God looks at, what God counts, is what Jesus did for us. It was his obedience, not ours. It was his righteousness, not ours. It was his death, not ours, that make us right in God's eyes. And the message of Christmas is simply this, will you switch and just put your total trust and faith in Jesus Christ. That is really the message of Christmas. And the question and the challenge for us is if we were really to fully embrace the message of Christmas, again, it's just transferring all of your weight that is all your trust in your good deeds, in your own righteousness, to the righteousness of Jesus alone. That's the message of Christmas. That is what makes Christianity unique. It's what makes Christianity stand above and apart from every other religion that has ever existed. That's the message that Matthew must have felt as he thought about the men and the women that God specifically, again, intentionally used to bring forth the Messiah. And that is, is that we stand before God as acceptable, again, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus did for us, what he did for us on the, on the cross. And to me, you know what? The encouragement for me is if God can and will and does use people like Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba to bring forth the birth of Jesus, to execute the plans and the purposes of God, surely, surely God can use me. God has a plan and a purpose for my life beyond all of my mistakes, beyond all of my failures, that God can use me as a part of what he's doing on the earth today. That is the message, that is the encouragement, that is the hope of Christmas, amen? Let's stand together this morning. Father, often it is so easy to just come to you and to just ask for a checklist 
Tell me what you want me to do, God, and then I can just check off the boxes. And God, that's not the kind of relationship. That's kind of a, of a, of a slave-master relationship. And Jesus was very, very clear that he came not to revisit or to reestablish a master-slave relationship. Rather, Jesus specifically said he comes to us as friends. He calls us friends. And he specifically says because the master doesn't tell the slave what he's doing. And Jesus calls us his friends because he tells us what he's doing. That he has come to die on a cross for the sins past, present, and future. That Jesus has come to die once for all. That is the message of Christmas. Jesus was born to die. And Jesus died so that we could be forgiven and saved. And it's all about Jesus and what he did for us. And our response to that is simply to receive the gift that God has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. So Father, this morning, I just pray if there are any here this morning, God, that fully or even partially kind of have their foot on the box of their own achievements, their own accomplishments, that God, it's never, ever gonna be enough. And that's why Jesus came. He came to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death, so that imperfect people could be saved. And Father, the scripture says that all of us have sinned, all of us are imperfect, and we have completely missed the bullseye of God's standard, every one of us. And so this morning, Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to see what it is that you're offering to us, that free gift of eternal life, the gift of forgiveness because of Jesus. And that, Father, we could come to a place where we fully, completely, totally put our trust in him. And in doing so, Father, we are then found to be acceptable in your eyes. Father, we're so grateful for the story of Christmas. We're so grateful for the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and his resurrection. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as we journey into Christmas, Father, that you would open our eyes more and more to that glorious truth. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.